a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on First Lady and Friends, we had a fun conversation with Marnie Allred. She is the media specialist or librarian at Robert Frost Elementary School in Granite School District. She is really passionate about helping kids learn and supporting teachers in the best way that she can. We talked about books and all the books that we love. And in the show notes, you can find those books and links to those books. Let's get proximate. We're back here on First Lady and Friends, and my guest today is someone that is a listener to the podcast and reached out, um, and I'm so happy she did. Her name is Marnie Allred, and she is the media specialist at Robert Frost Elementary School here in Salt Lake City in the Granite School District. So welcome to the program, Marnie. Thank you. So happy that she reached out because... Um, when you hear the term media specialist, <laughs> talk about just in, in, uh, I know we're going to get into this and what the, what the job description really is, but what, what is it for all practical purposes? So for all practical purposes, it's what you know as a librarian. Um, however, in the state of Utah, we are not required to have an education in library sciences. Um, you know, normally you would have a master's degree in library sciences to be a librarian, but <clears throat> they're expensive. So <laughs> our, the middle schools or the junior highs and the high schools do have librarians, but in the elementary schools we have media specialists. And so, you know, like my LinkedIn profile, I get job offers or job opportunity notes from you know various media outlets and different things. So I'm like, I don't think you really know what I do. <laughs> but um, it's it's just a you know the job classification is a clerk. Mm. So um, you know That's essentially a- we we are do clerical business. <laughs> so interesting, but- and, w- and we'll get into this. Um, exactly what it what it means and what you really do day to day and and kind of the issues around support staff in the elementary schools. But before we do that, or schools in general, all schools. But before we do that, let's let's talk about you and and your background. Where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your family and and your background. Okay, so my dad was an airline pilot, so I grew up all over the country. Um, he. He could live wherever he wanted to, really, and he would always see greener pastures. <laughs> and so I was born in Virginia and um, spent my elementary and junior high years in rural northeastern Washington, mm-hmm. about 60 miles north of Spokane, about 40 miles south of the Canadian border. Um, really beautiful area of the, of the country. And um, at that time, my dad was flying. He was based in Atlanta, Georgia. So, you know, commuting had a whole different meaning in our family, <laughs> but Delta, um, I assume. Yeah, I'm the. Well, no, actually, he was with Eastern Airlines at oh, the time, okay. which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So, but um, I'm the third of eight children, and there's 17 years from the top to the bottom. So, mm. I did a lot of raising of little children <laughs> before I ever had my own. Um, but I, you know, we went to a very small school. There was um, there were about 180 students. K through 12. Mm-hmm. We had two buildings that were connected. So we shared the cafeteria with the high school and the junior high. Um, we had five buses for our whole school district. The superintendent's office was right in the high school office. And <laughs> so that's kind of, but we lived on 50 acres and we had goats and a pony and, you know, just, it was really a very idyllic kind of childhood as far as, you know, whatever. But my dad is kind of an interesting man. He's very much into weird conspiracy theories and things like that. And so we did not have a television at all. So mm-hmm. books were our window on the world. And I, my mom didn't think she was a good reader, but mm-hmm. she read to us anyway. And 
I read. And in fact, we would get grounded from books. We would get our books taken away from us because we were reading when we were supposed to be doing chores or whatever. And I can remember being in the middle of a really good book and you know, milking the goat with one hand instead of two so I could hold my book in the other hand while I was milking in the morning or you know, whatever. But books have just always been a part of my life. We always had books in our house. We had the World Book Encyclopedia set at home. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it just, for me, to be able to now be in a place where I can share that love of books with others is the dream job. It's <laughs> oh, amazing. So. so you, there were five girls. So you had little sisters, and so we had six girls and two boys. Oh, six um, girls. Lost a little brother when I was five. Oh, okay. But um, so because of that, there's kind of a gap in the middle. Okay. And so the three younger girls were you know, significantly younger, <laughs> okay. and so. Um, you know, did a lot of reading to them as children and you know, bedtime stories while mom was taking care of the baby or whatever. And so just you know, a lot of that. And I still always have at least one book that I'm reading, sometimes three or four, you know, because sometimes my siblings and I would be reading the same book at the same time. And so it was kind of whoever had it was reading it and then you'd lay it they'd lay it down and then you'd grab it and read your next chapters or whatever you had to have so, an alternative <laughs> that's right so you know you'd have one in every room kind of thing so when the reader's digest would come every month that was a you know you fight over who got to read that first and we'd read it from cover to cover and mm-hmm. um so it just you know reading just really played a big part in my growing up and my being able to see the world because we didn't see a lot of the world where we were. Yeah. So tell me some of your favorite childhood books that you that are still a treasure to you. My absolute favorite was called The Golden Name Day, mm-hmm. and I wish I knew who wrote it. <laughs> but I do know that the illustrator was Garth Williams, who illustrated The Little House on the Prairie books. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, But it was about a little girl who had... I know, was of Scandinavian descent, but she had been raised in America. And so, but she had cousins and grandparents who celebrated their name day, which is a thing in, <laughs> um, in Scandinavia, in, in Germany, okay. Denmark, um, areas like that. And so she wanted to have a name day, but she didn't have a name that was Scandinavian. And so they couldn't find it in the name day book and things like that. And I found that in my school library when I was probably in about fourth grade. And by the time we left there in eighth grade, I had probably read it four or five times a year. (laughs) And unfortunately, it's not in print anymore. And I don't have a copy of it. But I always loved Dr. Seuss, um, Shel Silverstein. I loved anything that as I talk to kids now, I talk, call it gymnastics for your tongue, mm. um, that as you read it aloud, you know, it really is a kind of to get into that rhythm. And you now early on, I memorized Twas the Night Before Christmas because I just loved the way it rolled off your tongue and the way it <laughs> sounded when you put it all together. And I'm not huge into poetry, but <laughs> yeah. but I do like the children's poetry and the rhymes and the, you know, give me a good rhyming book any day and I... Mm. Love to read that. So fun. I re- I have a really distinct memory, so much so that I I I found this book and it, again it's completely out of print and it was really hard to find. And a teacher that I was related to happened to be, um, she it was she had passed away and her family were, um, going through her books in her classroom and had to clean out her classroom. And a friend of mine who was related to her, she said, um, I know you love this book because you've talked about it before. And she had it in her classroom. Would you like it? And I said, oh, my gosh, yes. yes. (laughs) It's called Caleb and Me. Mm -hmm. And it's the reason my son's named Caleb, because I loved that book. And the reason I did, it's just this funny story about these brothers and just their little adventures and and they just got into trouble and it just the and i just have this memory of my mom who you know i come from family 10 kids um just 
she just didn't always have a ton of time. I mean, she always read to us, either she or my dad read to us at night, but there just was, you know, craziness. But that was the time my mom sat and, and mm-hmm. just read to us and we saw her just being her. And she found so much delight in that book. I just remember, and I do, as a little kid, I remember her laughing so hard. I don't have a lot of memories of her <laughs> laughing with 10 kids, but I do have a memory of her just laughing till she had tears um, coming off her cheeks. And uh, because I just, and so I have this memory of her, just the most joyful moment with my mom. And I'm like, I have to find this book. And I've read it to my kids a number of times. And I just think there's, there's just something beautiful about, um, reading and, and the memories that come with that and the connections that you make with other people. And I think, um, I I wonder, do you, are you seeing some maybe negative trends and are or and or what are some positive trends that you're seeing with kids as they relate to books? I see kids coming to school who have never had a story read to them. Mm. And you know, to me that just makes me want to cry because I just think of all the times of a you know, a little child nestled in my lap having a story. And you know, I just can't imagine that you let your child be five years old and have not held them in your lap and read a story mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. And I know that you now there are so many parents who are just in survival mode and it's so easy to hand a tablet or a phone and you know, play with this while I'm while I'm doing this. And but it just you know, or or kids who don't even have books in their homes. And so you know, I mean any we make every effort when we weed books out of the library to get them into the hands of our kids at mm-hmm. school. Okay, so it's 20 years old. Who cares? It's a book. <laughs> Take it home. There's pictures. There's words. You know, sit down with it and open it and, and enjoy it, and it's yours. Keep it for the summer. You know, It just is so you – know, we had a couple of girls that ended up in foster care last year, and the best thing that we could do was send them home with a bunch of books mm-hmm. you know, so that they had – because I knew, especially the older girl, that was her escape, yeah. was to sit down with a book. And I think it's just not the same. You just don't use the same – you don't use your imagination when you're watching a movie. or you know, and, and I think to be able to read a story and create those characters in your head, and it's just such a different experience. And it, you know, it is. I do see that there are – children who just aren't read to mm. and you know yeah. my one story a week <laughs> yeah that's sad <laughs> yeah yeah it needs to be way more. <clears throat> do you see any positive trends that that maybe are something that that you're encouraged by um i do see how that there are that there are ways for kids to get books mm. where maybe they don't have a parent who takes them to the library that they can have an app that has books on it. And I know, and so for me, I'm kind of torn between the hand your kid a tablet or hand your kid a book. But if that tablet has a book on it, awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And, and the fact that that's available and that, that even they can have books read to them on the um, tablet. Yeah. Now, I mean, I love the the various charities and organizations that you know, have celebrities read a story to the kids and, and things like that because at least they're getting a story. Yeah. And it may not be that you know great bonding time with a parent, but at least they're getting a story. They're understanding how characters in a story each have their own voice and, you know, and those kinds of things. And so, yes, there's, there's a lot of good to the technology side of it too. Um, I also see a lot of grandparents trying to put books into kids' hands. Now, our book fair at school, it's the grandparents who are buying the books. And, now keep it up. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. And- I had a, when I was in the PTA at our elementary school, I had a, um, experience where we brought in, you know, the book fair. And I thought, I, 
me and, and the other PTA moms were like, you know what? Let's get rid of all the little junk that they sell. Like, let's not even put that out. So we're like, you know, all the little erasers and the little purses and the little, you know, all the goofy little posters uh-huh. and all the things that the kids, when they come in with their little, you know, all their little coins bag of and money. bag of money, <laughs> they want to buy those. Because I thought, no, I want to encourage them to buy books and not not this other stuff. And it was it was interesting. We had this. What happened was we made significantly significantly less money than we would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And in the end, we decided we would the next, you know, in the spring or whatever you do it in the fall and the spring. And in the spring, we decided we'd put the junk out because the more money you make, the more books they donate to classrooms. We thought, well, at least they're getting these They might be buying this junk, but at least they're getting the teachers are getting the the books for the classroom so that's kind of the way we we worked it we actually changed vendors last year because i really hate the junk <laughs> and as a parent i really hated that i'd be I like was... here's five dollars and they come home with a pile of stuff and i'm like we could have gone to the dollar store and had that too <laughs> I yeah, mean, it's yeah, just exactly. kind of, yeah so we went with a different vendor and they have kind of a different way of rewarding the school and so i've felt like it was still worth it. Oh, and, interesting. Okay. And well, we still sold a lot of books. So I was pleased with that. But Good to know. Well, yeah. I want to continue this conversation and talk about maybe some of the struggles that we're seeing in our schools, especially with our support staff. And we'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back here with Marnie Allred. She is the media specialist or librarian at uh, Robert Frost Elementary School. Um, I was talking to my sister, who is also a librarian. She was at the at a middle school in Star Valley, Wyoming, and I was talking to her about some of the issues that you had raised to me about support staff and the things that are going on in our elementary schools and and middle schools and high schools as it relates to our support staff. Now, it's well documented, and we've talked about it probably ad nauseum here on the show, um, that uh, we have a teacher shortage. We need to take care of our teachers. We need to give them the support that they need. Um, We need to keep our teachers in the classrooms, and and we need to make sure that they have the tools. but I think missing in that discussion is support staff. And we've talked a lot about, you know, substitutes and the shortage of substitutes. But the support staff is one of the key components to making sure that our students are getting everything that they need um, in a school setting and in their education. So talk a little bit about some of the struggles that are going on around sports staff and and maybe some experiences that you've been having um, as as part of that that group well I know first of all they're called support staff for a reason <laughs> they're literally you're, holding if you're wanting up. to support your teachers <laughs> you know, they're part of that group that supports the teachers and it's interesting being in the library um, a lot of the teachers until it came up last year thought that I was on salary mm-hmm. Um I'm kind of in an in-between position uh, where I do have a a class in there by myself for 30, 45 minutes, and I am acting in the position of a teacher once in a while. But at the same time, I am a support staff. I am limited to 29 hours a week, and I do not get benefits. I do not have any of the perks of a contract. Um, And so 
uh, it's it's a little different in every school. So I've been at Robert Frost for three years now. But the three years before that, I was a designated library substitute in Granite District. Mm. Because they are not classroom teachers, the librarians or the media clerks, you can't use a regular sub in the library. And so there's a little tiny pool of library subs. And it was really a unique experience because I could be at any one of the 63 elementary schools in the district on any given day. I could go there. I could work for a day. I could work for half a day. I could work for a week if that was you know, what was needed. But I got to be in a lot of faculty rooms. And sometimes I was completely ignored. I could be there and no one would even ask why I was in the building that day. <laughs> Other times I was you know, welcomed and are you a sub today? What are you doing here? You know, but faculty room at lunchtime, if you have your ears open and your mouth shut, is a really telling place. And um, you know, I would hear different complaints or I would hear different things that you know, people were happy about. And, and I started really to have a better appreciation for what a teacher's day was like. Now I've had three I have three sons. They've all gone through the whole school system. They all went K through, well, preschool through graduation from high school in the Granite District and now I've been in PTA, I've been on community councils. I've worked uh, how in the schools, but I really it was through that experience of being in a different school every day and really hearing that you know, the shortage of support staff was really part of the teacher problem because, you know, it's one thing for a sixth grade teacher to hand the class an assignment and say, okay, I'll be back in a minute and run to the restroom. It's quite another for a first grade teacher to say, I'll be back in a minute and try and run to the restroom, you know, and it's those days when we have bad air in the valley. And so there's restrictions on being able to send kids out for recess or the wind chill factor is such that you can't send them out to recess. So if they have indoor recess, and especially during the COVID stuff, you couldn't just send them all down to the multipurpose room or whatever. So teachers were doing recess in their classroom with their kids and they weren't getting that break. You couldn't have just one on duty and there weren't enough paraprofessionals to go around to monitor in every classroom. So, you know, it just from day to day, there was always something. And if the paraprofessional had been pulled in to be a sub that day, then they couldn't do their reading groups the way they usually did, or they couldn't do their math groups the way they usually did, or, you know, it just that whole shortage of support staff created a ripple effect throughout. And even to the point of how I was vacuuming my own library most weeks because we were down to one sweeper. And the sweepers are the ones who come in in the evenings after school's out. Sometimes they're high school kids or whatever. But the custodians get there at like 6 o'clock in the morning. So they're leaving. The regular custodian usually leaves before the kids even leave. And that's their work day. But then there's supposed to be some staff that comes in in the evening and takes care of things. Well, when you only have one for a whole school, then the trash cans get emptied, the restrooms get cleaned, and that's about it. And so, you know, it just, but when they can, you know, when our one sweeper could get a better job at a home improvement store and have better hours because she is in college trying to put herself through school, you know, of course she's not going to stick around and empty trash cans at the elementary school. <laughs> you know, she's going to go get that other job. And that's really you know, what's happened is people, I love this job, but I can't stay at this when I have a better offer. Yeah. And, you know, and being a public entity, it's not like they could just say, well, I guess we have to be competitive. Right. Know, the school district can't just all of a sudden say, well, we, you know, nobody's taking these jobs at $11 an hour. We better offer 15 like the local fast food places. They can't just put out that sign and say, hey, <laughs> we can offer you this much. <laughs> yeah. And you know, so it really is. And there's always been the hope, well, it's a great job for a parent who wants the same schedule as their kids. Well, I have a friend who you know, works with management in McDonald's and 
um, they're willing to be flexible these days because they need the workers. And so if a, if a mom really needs a job and wants to have the same schedule as her kids, she can work that out now too outside yeah. of the school district. And so it's just – it's a problem that I'm not sure where the answer is because uh, it's you can't just ask people to come and volunteer. And it sometimes feels like that kind of a, a job <laughs> because, I mean – Fortunately, I work for fun, really and truly. I have a husband who has a great job, and my kids are all grown, and I said, I want to go back to work. I want to go do something, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do what I'm trained for, <laughs> so <laughs> I'd much rather, much rather go and do this. And so I've worked in the district. I started out working as a gifted tester. Mm-hmm. I tested kids to see if they were eligible for the accelerated learning programs, and um, I know, but... I really – it's hard to – I don't know. There's only one of the testers that I worked with is still employed with the district in mm-hmm. that position. And, you know, and it really mostly comes down to money. And um, every once in a while you get lucky and there's somebody who says, yeah, I, I do want to just do something kind of for fun and with my kid's schedule. Yeah. But yeah. – That's amazing. And, and yeah, I, I mean we – it, it's an issue. I mean, it's a it's a huge issue. The labor market is tough, um, but but in my mind, it's it's so important that we've got to address it for sure. Um, you you wrote an incredible essay uh, about your job and what it all entails. And um, one of the things that I loved about it, again, my sister who is a librarian, she. She related to it so much, and and you talked a little bit about this idea of just having this job that doesn't really fit neatly in a traditional box, um, and and all the things that that your job entails. And the, the, one of the things that I I really loved in the essay was, uh, you you likened your job a little bit to a bartender. So talk <laughs> a little bit about what you meant by that. Well, I. I don't know what it is, whether it's just me, because I do have people who will come up to me in the grocery store and just start talking to me. I just am kind of one of those people. I don't know. But our library in our school is rather centrally located. Um, Our school was originally built as an open concept school, so they added walls as an afterthought. And it's not thoughtfully laid out. So the library is a easy shortcut mm-hmm. between areas of the school, which I have to always remind the kids, this is not a hallway, but I've told teachers, pass through all you want. You know, you know, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> if a teacher walking through the library distracts the kids, then I'm not doing my job. So, uh, you know, but there's a circulation desk there and the teachers tend to come through and will stop and unload. You know, they'll stop and share, I can't believe that so-and-so just did this, or you will not believe what just happened in my classroom. Or, you know, and I also have windows out to the main hall, and so I see a lot of things out there, and even to the point that my grown children look forward to hearing you know, tales from the hallway. I'll share different <laughs> things that you won't believe what just went by my door today. You know? but um, And so I, and I've always assured the teachers that Anything you say to me is kept confidential. I don't gossip among the teachers. If you complain about an administrator, that's not getting to them through me. If you complain about a student, the student's not hearing it from me. It's it's a safe place to leave your load and move on. Mm. And to me, I take my, my title of support staff very seriously. To me, I'm not there for me. Um, my first job is to serve and the first people that I'm there to serve is the teachers and second is the kids. Because if the teachers aren't doing well, then the kids won't do well. And so I really, you know, some of these things that I listed in my essay, nobody asked me to do them. I saw that they needed to be done, so I jumped in and did it. Um, I've had teachers ask for some interesting favors sometimes, and that's fine because now everybody owes me a favor, but you <laughs> know. Um, and if I can do something, if you know, if their class is missing library that week because we've had a holiday or we've had a short day moved to a Thursday because Friday's off for some reason, I make every effort to reschedule them at least to get in and exchange their books or 
just come in and have story time and we'll call it good. But at least, you know, and so for me personally, my feeling is I'm here to serve. And if my service can be that they have a place to stop and lay their load and not worry about it, you know, affecting anybody else or coming back at them in any way, then they're welcome to stop at the bar and <laughs> I've got an ear. <laughs> and, and I always say I have broad shoulders. I can carry more than one load at a time. You know? So, But it really, you know, I think it's it's given me an opportunity to truly support. And, and because I support them, I feel totally supported. Mm. I mean, if I have a problem with a student in the library and I go to a teacher and say this happened, I know that it's going to be taken care of. How, even if that means that kid loses a library pri- privilege for a week or something, I know that the teacher has my back, that I can, you know, that the teacher isn't just going to look at me like, well, why couldn't you handle that? <laughs> yeah. Or if I were even to go find a teacher in the middle of library and say, I need your help in here. This is just out of control. They'd be there. And and I and I feel the same way about our principal there. Um, you know, he and I started at that school at the same time. And so um, – but – He's very much always been really supportive. It, you know, if anything I want to do, okay, sounds good. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. and and unfortunately, I hear from colleagues that that's not the case everywhere. But, um, you know, and I will say that there are probably some media clerks out there who aren't trying to serve the teachers and who you know who it's very much about them and their little room and and don't. Um, because I've worked in some of those libraries and, you know, even as a sub and had teachers be like, oh, could you be here all the time? <laughs> I'm like, no, not really. But, <laughs> but maybe you should train those, <laughs> those and, other ones. And so, you know, I just really feel like the, the teachers have an incredibly difficult job. And I get to read to kids and help them find something fun to read. And so... I know, and they nobody administers a test at the end of the year to see if I did my job well. Yeah, yep, yeah. That's that's a great point. Um, I want to talk about what uh, you might change if you had uh, your way, <laughs> if you could uh, wave your magic wand, and we'll do that when we come right back. Welcome back to First Lady and Friends. We are here with Marnie Allred at Robert Frost Elementary School. I love going in elementary schools. I, it's it's the same smell. It's the, there's there's a certain distinct smell for an elementary school and um just some of my greatest times, you know, being a mom at PTA and and spending time in my kids' classrooms. It's just there's there's nothing like it. Um, kids really do say the darndest things. And I'm sure you have a book full of the best, especially when you're reading to a kid and you get that little hand and you're like, oh, no, what's coming? It's so great. No, the best ones don't raise their hand, though. They just blurt <laughs> it out. And then you're back there writing this down because it's hilarious. Uh, it's fun. But I, I guess my question is, like, what would you change? What could, you know, if you had a magic wand, if you had you know, the ear of, of every superintendent or, you know, every decision maker, a legislator, whoever it is, what, what would you, what would you change? What would you do? I mean, even around your job, but around, you know, all of education, what, what would you, what would you like to see happen? I think the number one thing, if I had a magic wand, (laughs) would be that every parent who has a child in school would have to be a teacher for a day oh, yes. <laughs> because I am amazed at the stories that get shared of things that teachers, you know, they are trying to help a student excel and the feedback that they get from a parent when they are making that effort or, or when, you know, when a student has been in trouble and the parent who you know, it's like, oh, well, the apple didn't fall far from the tree when you <laughs> hear the words that the parent used toward the teacher even. Mm. And, you know, just threats that are made toward teachers by parents and and things. And I think somewhere we got away from parents 
expecting their children to respect their teachers. Mm. I mean, I know I'm older, but when, when I was in school, if I got in trouble at school, it was double the punishment at home. Whatever was meted out at school, I could expect twice that at home. And then we'd have the discussion of, well, were you really in the wrong here? But my teacher was believed. If my teacher made a phone call or sent a note home or whatever, my parents believed my teacher first. And we don't see that anymore. And the respect is just not there. And then you wonder why the kids don't respect the teachers. Well, because their parents don't respect them. And so, you know, that would be my my first thing (laughs) with the magic wand. Um, That's not really practical and ever going to happen but although I think there's some of that can happen I've, I've been talking to business leaders we talked at our teacher conference about um, you know two two legislators and two business leaders and I, I think there's there's something we can do there I mean you know my husband's idea is that every legislator should spend at least one day a year in in a classroom to really understand the the issues and the problems before, you know, passing legislation, I think it's really important to actually see it with their own eyes instead of hearing it from, from parents or different interest mm-hmm. groups. Um, but I, as I talked to business leaders, I was really forceful in saying, could you, could this be something that you could do either give them certain time per week? Like, could you give your employees one day a week? Uh, one hour a week, not a day, one hour a week mm-hmm. to go into the classroom, uh, to go into their child's classroom. I mean, that's, that's what I did. I did like from the time my kids were teeny weeny in kindergarten, I went and spent one day a week, you know, up until sixth grade. They didn't want me in middle school. For, <laughs> shockingly. To come on. <laughs> they, they still thought I was OK to come in in, in sixth grade. But I mean, it was the most enlightening thing I did. It helped me to support the teacher. It helped me to understand that when my kid came home and said something that I thought was a little off, I was in the classroom and I'd be like, nah, that's not right. right. <laughs> I don't think you're getting that right. I don't think I'm getting the right story from you. And then I could have just really open dialogue with teachers. Uh, they appreciated the honesty. They appreciated uh my help in in their classroom if nothing but to just be aware of of their style of the way they did things so that i could um be supportive at home and and so i i just think you are exactly right that's exactly what needs to happen and and i don't think it's unreasonable i think with the climate that we're in with the way we can use technology um, if we can work at home, we certainly can spend an hour a week, even a month, even an hour a month. Um, we could it could make a huge, huge difference. I think even just if it was an hour, just sitting in the back of the room and seeing what the teacher is having yes. to deal with. Yes. Oh, um, it's it's crazy in there, <laughs> and and it's not just. I know the funny little things. Those are just perks, but it's the the true craziness that some of them, most of them, are dealing with, and and so it, you know, to as a parent, you think, oh, I have to juggle five kids in and out of the car and this and that and all the rest, and then you know, but we've got teachers who have thirty five kids that they're trying to juggle all day long, and yeah. and when you have classes that are that big, you don't have anything close to good groupings or how ability levels that are all equal. And, and so I think parents just have totally lost touch with what it is that a teacher is really doing all day in there. Yeah. And I know, and I, and that's one thing that I see and I think, you know, I almost wish I could go back and give my kids teachers more time and I was one who I you know at the beginning of the year I would say I can give you an hour a week in your classroom you can choose the day what can I do to take something off your plate yep and you know but and I get that not all parents can do that but right it's you know even just to 
or to to sit back and say, okay, I'm not in that classroom. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I should listen to this teacher before I lash out and say, no, my kid's an angel. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know? And so it really, you know, there's just as much as teachers try to communicate with the parents, there's a real breakdown on of that. Oh, emails don't get answered. Phone calls don't get answered. Or parents have these unrealistic expectations. I mean, we had a teacher who had a parent expecting her to stay after school and tutor her child because he was having problems. Well, he had missed a lot of school. That Mm -hmm. wasn't the teacher's fault. (laughs) And no, the teacher wasn't staying after school to tutor this child individually. If he's at school, she's happy to teach him. But, you know, just expectations that... Even that's something that, that would be okay to ask the teacher to do. Yeah. Well, we are all kind of sitting there like, huh, never occurred to me. <laughs> but I don't know. So I just, I wish that there was more of a commitment on the part of parents who are sending their kids to school. I mean, they're getting an amazing benefit yeah. <laughs> sending their kids to school every day, and they don't seem to have an appreciation for it mm. or the work that's really behind their kid being cared for all day. Yeah, cared for and educated in a way that that is so um, unique to this time in history because um, – there's there's the technology and the and the hybrid situation and kids missing so much school. One thing that I've been hearing a lot from educators too is this idea of, um, like you you mentioned a little bit that they that there are just a lot of kids. I think post pandemic or you know middle pandemic wherever we are. I don't even know where we are, but like <laughs> wherever we are on that wherever spectrum. <laughs> we are on the spectrum of pandemic today. Um, it, there's there's this sort of laxed um, attitude. And and I don't know if it's fair to say that parents are just deciding not to send their kids. There's various reasons why kids are are not coming to school. But I think there's a there's certainly a problem with attendance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's one thing that I've been hearing from teachers is that, you know, like you mentioned it. So not only are they trying to do Herculean work with the kids that are there, then they're trying to catch kids up that have missed and missed and missed, and um, and, and it's just it's just a tough tough situation. And and if we're not careful, you know, we're gonna have many teachers, <laughs> and and that and that's yeah. that's an issue. So um, I want to in our last few minutes uh, get back to books because we both have this <laughs> burning love for for books. I love the Thomas Jefferson quote, I can't live without my books. That's I have that written on, on my wall. Um, let's talk about what you're reading now. Oh, I, we talked about childhood one. Of course, my, you know, I talked about that one, my other favorite. I, I will never, like, I have to read it every couple of years, the whole series, the Anne of Green Gables series, because that <laughs> is like, that is my therapy. That's where, like, it's just so delightful, and I love it so much. And I've talked a lot about that. And there's there's many childhood books that I just love, love, love. But what are you reading now? What interests you now? And and what are your best book recommendations? Well, during the school year, I read books out of my library mm. because having only had boys and being a few years out of school with them. I realized I have not read a lot of the books on these shelves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so during the school year, I really try to just read kids' books. Mm -hmm. Um, My current favorite picture book is called What About Worms? And it is by Higgins. I am this is really bad to admit, but I am really bad with authors and even (laughs) book titles. So, um, but um, it's, got a tiger in it who reminds me a little bit of Hobbes from Calvin and Hobbes. (laughs) And he is a tiger and he is brave and bold and everything that a tiger should be, except he doesn't like worms. (laughs) And what, you know, what if there's worms in this apple or what if there's worms in this potted plant? And what if there's a worm in this book? And then it ends up with the worms are very afraid of tigers. <laughs> and, and what if, you know, and they find this book and it turns out that, you know, 
it's the tiger tail, not the worm that they <laughs> thought it was. And um, there's that. And then the other picture book that I absolutely fell in love with right at the end of the school year is another one about worms, but it's called I Can Only Draw Worms. And it is the most honest picture book I have ever read. <laughs> the author illustrator says I can only draw worms. And so it's a counting book and he draws worm number one and he draws worm number two and oh they look just exactly the same so you know but so he gives one of them glasses so you can tell them apart and you know and then he gets on and he describes well worm number five is riding a sparkly unicorn and you turn the page and there's just a worm there and he says i told you i can only draw worms (laughs) and so but it was so much fun to give the kids now it's got a bright yellow cover and give the kids a piece of you know, a bright yellow piece of paper folded like a book and have them make the cover of their own book. Mm. And I can only draw what, you know, and, and they had to draw their thing and put their and I told them no copying off I want everybody to be original. And I had a second grader who I can only draw money. And so he drew like his version of a dollar bill. And then I saw at the table that another kid was also drawing money. And I was like, you know, but time's almost up, whatever. I told him not to copy. But so as I'm gathering them up to put up on the wall, because I told him I would display them, I noticed that the second child had written, I can only draw Anthony's money. (laughs) And Anthony was the only one, was the one who could only draw money. (laughs) And so I had a great laugh about that because I was like, okay, this kid's going somewhere. <laughs> right. He will he will be fine. Not he may not that. have been able to really come up with his own idea, but he did. <laughs> so that that book I will be doing a lot with this year. But I don't know what it is about me and worms and picture books. But, um, but in the summer, I try to read grown-up books. And I have just finished two so that I can read the latest in the series. But I've been reading, it's uh, Dr. Ruth Galloway, um, and I don't know who the author is. <laughs> She's British, and they, um, Dr. Ruth Galloway is a, um, a forensic archaeologist, and so she ends up, they're, they're crime stories. And, and she's called in when it looks like it's old bones that they've found instead of you know, a fresh corpse. And, but in general, I love... Um, historical fiction. I've never been one for fantasy, really. I have read a few because my husband read them and I wanted to talk about them or whatever. He likes science fiction and fantasy and um, didn't like the whole idea of romance stuff at all growing up, so I never got into those. I had a sister who read all of those for the family. but um, (laughs) So I really, you know, I just, I've also enjoyed, um, I think it's called She's Up to No Good. It was the story of a a 30-something who's just gone through a divorce and she ends up taking a road trip with her grandmother back to her grandmother's hometown and finding out all kinds of fun stuff about her grandmother and falling in love with this guy that her grandmother sets her up with and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But I really, I'll read anything. I mean, yeah. I know if my computer is taking too long to boot up, I'll read whatever's in the garbage can next to the desk. So that's right. <laughs> I, love that. I just like to read. But. <laughs> Let me ask you this right here before we close. Um, and maybe this, uh, I don't know if you can do a short answer, but <laughs> or or a, you know, politically correct answer. But there's a lot of controversy around um, books and what books we have in the libraries, especially for our younger readers. And um, I just, I, I would be interested in your thoughts. Um, you know, I personally think it's, it's, it's a tough and I can kind of see both sides of the issue. Um, and I'm not sure even my own thoughts on it yet. Um, you know, as far as it's really hard. I mean, I read Gone with the Wind. I <laughs> thought it was really fascinating. And, you know, but then there's a lot of people that think that shouldn't happen. Or there's, you know, th- there's a lot of sort of history that 
we don't anyway. We don't there's, want to acknowledge. Yeah, <laughs> that we don't want to acknowledge. And and then there's sort of this, you know, idea that kids should be able to read anything and everything. And then, but is it really appropriate? And who gets to decide who it's, uh, you know, whether it's appropriate? So, just wanted to know your thoughts on it. So, as a librarian, my thought is. Every parent should have the right to decide what their child is reading, especially their younger children. But I do not have the right to decide what your child is reading. Mm. And so I don't have the right to say your child does, shouldn't have access to book X, even if I don't want my child reading it. Right. Because maybe you have a whole different philosophy on life or a different outlook or maybe your viewpoints are completely different from mine and your belief systems and that. And so it's not, I don't have the right to limit your child's access to something, but I have the right to limit my child's access to it. And so if a parent comes to me with a concern about a book, um, then I'm happy to restrict their child's access to that book or a book like it. But I am not willing to take that off the shelf and make it not available to somebody who is fine with their child reading that book. Mm-hmm. And now my oldest son was very advanced in reading. And by the time he had hit sixth grade, there was nothing left <laughs> that was age yeah. appropriate that challenged him in any way. And I mean, we had some interesting experiences with him reading unabridged Sherlock Holmes Mm -hmm. because British terminology is different than American terminology (laughs) and there are things that mean different things. And I had his teacher send him home with, you should ask your mom what that means. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but I wasn't going to limit him from that. We could have a discussion about what that means in American English as opposed to British English and why it's okay to have it in a book in British English, but not okay for him to say on the playground. You know, and so I I would hope that all of this uproar about books and appropriateness is leading to discussions in homes. Yeah. I'm afraid it's not. Yes. I, I'm afraid I, it's yeah. leading to discussions on Facebook or uh, <laughs> or yes. wherever. And and so, you know, if if I had questions about something I read in a book, I always knew that my mom might be embarrassed if I asked, but I could go and ask her. Mm. And I don't know if you've read the book Educated. Mm-hmm. I have. Um, that's kind of how I grew up, except that my mother was educated and my dad had a good job. Mm. So, but that kind of yep. thinking. Yes. And had I not had books and my siblings had books that we could see and know that there were other things out there, mm. other ways of thinking, um, other versions of history even, yeah. then I don't know where I'd be. Wow. You know? And yeah. so – and I think you know if you read that author also mentions that There were things that she read when she got to college that opened her eyes to, hey, the whole world isn't like this. And so it really, for me, it's personal when parents want to say that child shouldn't be able to read that book. Or that book shouldn't be on the shelf because what if a sixth grader comes in and reads that and finds out something? Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, if you're not finding out things from books, then you're not picking up the right books. Mm. And so I really, so far I haven't had any parents come and complain oh, that's or good. say anything. And I think part of it is parents have no idea what their kids are reading yeah. or if they're reading, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting. I, some of the, and I love what you said because the 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 most interesting and powerful conversations I've had with my children are around um, something that they've encountered that maybe runs a little counter to what either we've taught them or they believe or they think. And, and it's these questions. I remember my daughter bringing home a book from middle school and she said, and I looked at it and I said, Hmm, 
I don't know. She said, and, and so I kind of flipped through it, but I, I wasn't sure. And I said, you know what? Let me read it first and let me decide after I read it whether you can, whether I want you to read it or not. And so I did. And um, it was, it was really heavy. Um, and I thought in seventh grade, maybe, maybe not. Maybe when you're a little bit older and some of these concepts are, are going to be, you know, your your brain's a little bit more mature. You're going to be able to process this stuff a little bit better Then then let's let's do it then. And so that was a conversation we had. And and, you know, even my my kids, when they've read books, you know, in school for for English or, you know, college English, they're, you know, their AP classes or something. And, and they're a little they're a little tough and they're a little heavy and. And usually I've read them. If I haven't, I try to because I, I just really think that's really important to have that discussion and be know exactly what's in it instead of just be told what's in it. And I, I just think I would never I wouldn't trade those conversations with my kids for anything. I just think it's allowing them in a lot of ways um, to develop those those critical thinking and reasoning skills. And I, I just. I wouldn't trade that. And so I would, I don't, and now I'm not willy nilly everything. I don't think everything has value. Right. I don't think every book has value. Absolutely. I mean, there's trash. There's just like anywhere else, <laughs> any other form of media, there's mm-hmm. going to be just some really yucky stuff. But I think we, as parents, you're exactly right. As parents, that's, that's just a powerful discussion that we can have. And I know, I mean, I, I find it really, if you had told me as a 14-year-old, you can't read this book, I would have done anything I could to get my hands on that book and read it and find out why. <laughs> you know, why what is it that you're afraid of in this book? And I think, you know, it's so much better to say, like you did, okay, let me read it first, and maybe it's too heavy for you right now. Because I do believe you know, that we need to protect our children from things, but at the same time, I think some of these parents – have the idea that their kids are way more protected than they they really are. are Because (laughs) I guarantee you, if they're in the lunchroom or out on the playground every day, they're already exposed to a lot of the things you're worried about this book exposing them to. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) And at least a lot of the stories, I mean, as far as the things that I've read that have come up as being possibly controversial – most of them are written in a way that the author is trying to be very careful. The yeah. author is, recognizes that this is a book I intend to have elementary schools be able to buy right. and have on their shelves. And But at the same time, some of them are based on the author's personal experiences. And man, if I could have picked up a book when I was this age and recognized – that what was going on with my uncle or the family friend was abuse. And I should have talked to somebody because that wasn't okay, even though he said I shouldn't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, to if and you know, I know there's one author in particular who has stated that you know, it's based on her sister's experiences. And if there had been something that, you know, one of them had read as kids and said, hey, what's happening to us isn't okay Mm. and isn't right, then maybe they wouldn't have had the suffering. And maybe there's a kid out there who will pick up that book and read it and be like, hey, this is what's happening to me. And maybe I should go like they did and talk to somebody in Mm. this, you know, like they did in this story. And so it's such, you know, I mean, it. There is a balance, but we live in this world where we are bombarded by way worse stuff than you're ever going to find in a book. Yes. (laughs) Can I introduce you to the internet? (laughs) And so I think, you know, I I hope that parents will be involved. I hope parents will ask their kids, what did you check out at the library this week? What are you reading? Go through their backpacks. (laughs) Yeah, read it with them. Yep. If, you know, the kid will know if... It's not okay. You know, if you say, hey, could I sit down and read a chapter to you tonight before you go to sleep? And the kid's like, oh, maybe not, mom. <laughs> then then you know, okay, maybe this is a book that we should have a discussion about if they don't want me to read it. Yep. And But you have to be involved. Yeah. 
That's the key. That's the key. Well, Marnie, this has been such an amazing conversation, and I so appreciate you um, sharing with me your experiences. Um, it's and and to our listeners because I think it's a story that needs to be told. Our support staff are so critical to the success of our teachers and our students. So I so appreciate that and your experiences um, and your work in the elementary school. So thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.